What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. So look, as the internet grows in the next 10, 15 years, and virtual reality pornography becomes a reality, mm-hmm. we're going to have to develop some real machinery inside our guts to turn off pure unalloyed pleasure, or I don't know about you, I'm going to have to leave the planet. Hey, forget internet porn, Josh. I'm worried about all the pure unalloyed pleasure film spotting has generated in the past 10 years. I mean, what's keeping someone from wasting their life away listening to our entire archives? I really, really hope we provide a different sort of pleasure. (laughs) Fair enough. Jason Siegel there as the late writer David Foster Wallace in the new film, The End of the Tour. We'll review the Sundance hit, plus the top five movies about writers. That and much more ahead on Film Spotting. Spotting is brought to you this week by Movie, a curated online cinema that brings its members a handpicked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. The new films at Movie this week include Down Terrace. This is British director Ben Wheatley's 2009 feature debut. It's a family crime drama which Movie calls grippingly harsh, all too clever, unexpectedly funny, and hard to turn away from. With Switzerland's Locarno Film Festival running through the 15th of this month, Mubi is also kicking off a Locarno retrospective with the global online premiere of Swiss filmmaker Andreas Staka's Cure, The Life of Another, a dreamy psychological drama that debuted at the 2014 Fest. They're also showing a film that played the 2012 Locarno Festival and was, according to Letterboxd, my number 14 movie of 2013, and Josh, your number 12 movie of 2013, Museum Hours. Jim Cohn's film set at a museum in Vienna. His latest film should be appearing later this year. It's called Counting and is a collection of visual impressions across 15 chapters. Cone is clearly positioning himself as the guy to helm the Jurassic World sequel. You never know these days. I'd like to see that, actually. And Josh, that's a film. We have a screening link available to us. I don't believe I've shared with you yet. I am excited to see what Jem Cone has in store. Everyday Movies curators introduce a new title and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy and it's all just $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline and film spotting listeners can try movie free for a month. Just go to movie.com slash film spotting to redeem now. That's mubi.com slash film spotting. You're listening to Film Spotting with Adam and Josh. A massive case of writer's block has kept us from producing new top fives this summer, a condition that many of the characters in the movies that make up this week's archive top five can totally relate to. Our top five movies about writers is later in the show. Writer's block, right. But first, a formidable writer, so formidable I've spent most of 2015 making my way through his infinite jest, is the subject of the end of the tour. Does the movie do justice to David Foster Wallace? When I think of this trip, I see David and me in the front seat of his car. He wants something better than he has. I want precisely what he has already. David. Wallace. Welcome to Minneapolis. Uh, hi, I'm, I'm David Lewski. Oh, How are you? hi. Okay, David and David. We only just met. He's writing a piece on the tour. What's this story about in your mind? Just what it's like to be the most talked about writer in the country, that sort of thing. You're like a nervous guy, huh? (laughs) No, no, no. No, I'm okay. How are you? Because I'm terrified. 
I gotta ask, what is with the bandana? I know that it's a security blanket for me whenever I'm kind of afraid my head is gonna explode. <laughs> if we ate like this all the time, what would be wrong with that? It's like good seductive commercial entertainment, like, uh, like Die Hard. Uh, first Die Hard? First Die Hard. Great yes. film. No, it's a brilliant the film. The best. Hey, isn't it reassuring to have a lot of people read you? I think if the book is about anything, yeah. it's about the question of why. Why am I doing it? And what's so American about what I'm doing? Don't worry, Adam, I won't begin our end of the tour review by asking the question I teased before the break, whether or not the movie does justice to the late novelist David Foster Wallace. That's good, because I think the only thing I've read of David Foster Wallace's is that report he did from the set of David Lynch's Lost Highway. That's all right. You got to start somewhere. I know how you feel about book adaptations, that they should be judged on their own merits. And I suspect you'd apply the same line of thinking here. We shouldn't be primarily concerned with how true the end of the tour is to Wallace, played by Jason Siegel, or his work. So let's take the film at face value as it traces five days that Wallace spends on a book tour for Infinite Jest while accompanied by Rolling Stone writer David Lipsky, played by Jesse Eisenberg, who's doing a profile on him. What I am curious about is what you thought of the way director James Ponsolt of The Spectacular Now explored subjects which also happen to be key to Infinite Jest. Loneliness, ego, American achievement, addictive entertainment. Did the end of the tour delve into these topics in interesting cinematic ways, or did they seem like observational nuggets dropped in from someplace else? The real Lipsky's book about his time with Wallace, perhaps, or perhaps even Infinite Jest itself. Hmm. It's a great place to start because I did think about this during the film. I was considering how, at the risk of sounding very obvious, books are words that allow readers, that allow us to create pictures in our minds. And a movie, of course, provides the words and the pictures. And when it's a movie about writers who spend the whole time talking, there is something perhaps a little unsatisfying about not really getting a chance to do some of that imaginative work, to conjure our own images, and to create our own version of David Foster Wallace. And, of course, use him then for whatever purposes we want, just as I think David Lipsky is doing here in the film. And I definitely am still considering, as we did just walk out of this film, what someone who was a little bit more daring formally, maybe like Wallace himself, so I'm told, would have done with the material. That said, he certainly succeeded in putting me in this surreal headspace. And I don't know that the movie itself is that surreal. It's pretty straightforward. But you've got two people trying to connect, confined space, confined amount of time, And while they're trying to connect, they're both so keenly aware that everything about their connection is artificial. So they're doing this weird dance the whole time, trying to discern what's illusion and what isn't, if any part of this is real at all. So I did feel hazy walking out of it because of the slightly shaky camera, the reliance on close-ups, the complete lack of depth to most of the images here. You're always looking only at what's right in front of you. And I think that's reflective of these characters and their self-absorption, or if you want to put it a nicer way, their obsessive self-awareness and their over-analysis. It reminded me a little bit, actually, of a movie I love and have praised over the years here on the show, Dylan Kidd's Roger Dodger, in terms of its similar visual approach, though this is much grittier, actually, just physically grainier and doesn't have the lusciousness of New York that Dylan Kidd's movie has. But I was overwhelmed by the smoke and the conversation and your head spinning by the lack of clarity 
in the imagery that matches the lack of clarity in the dialogue. And it's not, of course, that they aren't articulate. They're both incredibly articulate. And it's not that the script isn't focused. The script is maybe even a little bit too focused for what this trip was, according to my understanding. But the subjects of the conversations and the areas they go, some of the themes you touched on, identity, happiness, America and American achievement, these aren't subjects that are really knowable, no matter how much you probe them. So I thought that the camera work actually did really match the subject matter. I also really like how Ponsolt uses point of view, and maybe we can get into that, but I want to know what you think. I do want to talk about the point of view. One question I had is, do we ever see Wallace through eyes other than Lipsky's? I don't think we do. No, see, that's that's where I was going to go. Until that uh, last scene we get in the midst of the credits Mm -hmm. that you and I almost missed because, hey, this isn't a Marvel movie. We didn't (laughs) expect Thor to show up. I'm really glad I stayed, yeah. But but that may be the only moment in this film where we see, quote-unquote, the real Wallace. Mm -hmm. Now, he doesn't really do anything particularly revealing in but that it is scene revealing. that would say, oh, well, this is what he's really like. But still, the the majority of the movie is through Lipsky's eyes. And I think that's worth remembering. It's worth remembering in a way to answer that initial question that I didn't ask about whether or not it does justice to Wallace. Well, that's not really what the movie is setting out to do because no. it's a skewed perspective from the start. And this really becomes less an exploration of Wallace and his work than this relationship between these two guys. What I liked about it being just somewhat familiar with his work is that it did pull from it in those themes and some times I believe directly from his words. I want to research a little bit how much of the dialogue comes from the interview itself. I'm sorry, are you claiming to be an infinite just expert at this point, (laughs) Josh? No, I'm not because I can't say for sure whether some of it is pulled directly, but it sounds familiar. And yet, even though it does that, and sometimes that makes it on the nose because they're talking about specific things Mm -hmm. like ambition and ego, the movie lets those ideas flower out of this relationship, often in the moments when they're not talking. So Mm -hmm. they're putting their ideas out there in the forefront in their conversations. And the conversations I found fascinating. I mean, you have to go back to something like my dinner with Andre, where I was just sitting there enthralled with two people talking to each other and trying to keep up and read the signals they were sending beyond the words that they're saying. So the conversations are really good. But the way these ideas fully flower are in the scenes where they're not talking but acting while the other doesn't know the other one is looking. They're watching their actions a lot. Yeah. And that's very revealing. And those things say telling things about ego and about loneliness, all this stuff. One example I would give is the great touch where Lipsky is invited to stay over at Wallace's house uh-huh. the first night. Now, Lipsky is a novelist himself. He's been published. And – Wallace doesn't even seem to – we don't think he seems to understand that offering him the guest room where he stores all of his published novels is just this huge insult because it's clear that Lipsky is is insecure. And you know the the impasse that these two are against, which is what makes the movie so compelling, is that Lipsky wants what Wallace has and Wallace doesn't want what he has. Mm -hmm. They say this out loud at the end in a scene I wish they hadn't said. I'm with you. It becomes too obvious. Though you just articulated what I have 
in about two paragraphs in front of me in my notes. So thanks, Josh. <laughs> well, sorry, but you know, the, they hit that nicely with that early scene of him going into the bedroom with all those books. You know, we, we get that there. And there are other touches like that in the film where this becomes more than a series of conversations, even though those conversations are pretty riveting. You're listening to Film Spotting. Hopefully, our conversation is halfway riveting as we discuss the end of the tour. I want to talk a little bit more about that intimidation factor, or at least the rivalry and the one-upsmanship that you get, because there are some really nice moments here. But going back to the point of view, and it is in a post-credit sequence where it really finally crystallized for me, and we're not revealing anything because the moment itself is not that revealing, very except minor. in the way it might make you think about the way you viewed the film, the way James Ponsel made us view the film. And it's a moment where we saw the prelude to it in the film. They're having a conversation in an early scene at David Foster Wallace's house, and he decides the Lipsky character that he wants to try tobacco because, of course, he is trying very hard uh-huh. to be just like David Foster Wallace. And it's when, such a little kid moment. Yeah, isn't and it? when he does put it in his mouth, like I remember doing at one point when I was who knows how old, and then instantly, just like him, going to the bathroom and spitting it out. <laughs> now it shows us that sequence. But not what happens when he goes into the bathroom, though I also love that touch when we see it originally, where he, of course, does open up the mirror to see what's in there. And it's not just it's not just that he's being a creepy journalist who's trying to gather fodder for his piece. It's because, you know, he's looking for some kind of secret in there. Mm -hmm. Like what what is he consuming? What magic elixir? Yeah, that he has that I can buy (laughs) and I'll have the magic, too. I love that little touch. But now we stay in the room with David Foster Wallace and we see him talk to the recorder. And it's just this little intimate interjection. And it does finally hit you that really this entire film, we have only seen David Foster Wallace from David Lipsky's perspective. And what that does really heighten, or at least it really heightened for me, is this realization that Lipsky is always not just looking at him, but really probing him. And then because we're seeing it through his eyes, we're doing the same thing where we're looking for that same kind of secret. We're looking for some way in to understand the brilliance, to understand the genius. And you feel like the camera is almost because Lipsky's eyes are doing it, that the camera is devouring him. And I felt like watching it, that must be exhausting. That must have been exhausting for a man like David Foster Wallace, and really for any artist or any celebrity who has those types of eyes always devouring him. You know what I would love to do, man? I would love to do a profile on one of you guys who's doing a profile on me. Mm, that is interesting. Or is that too pomo and cute? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe for Rolling Stone. but It would yeah. be interesting, though. You think? Uh, I'm sorry, man. <laughs> What's wrong? It's just you're going to go back to New York and like sit at your desk and shape this thing however you want, man. I mean, to me, it's just extremely disturbing. <laughs> Why is it disturbing? Because I think I would like to shape the impression of me that's coming across. I yeah. I, I, I don't even know if I like you yet. So nervous about whether you like me. So maybe here's where we can get into the performances, because I thought that was one aspect of Siegel's performance that was really strong. Almost from the start, you have that fear in his eyes, the way he glances Mm -hmm. at the tape recorder right away. He always seems to know where the tape recorder is. And that recorder is almost a third character in this film. It gets as much screen time as the other two because it is this symbol of power and 
honesty in a sense and revelation. Mm -hmm. That's when things are supposedly going to be revealed. So I did like how Siegel played that part up. I like also this gets into the idea of our perspective of him that he hints at, just hints at the fact that maybe he is putting on a performance for Lipsky. And they talk about this in another very great conversation. This is about three quarters of the way in the film where Lipsky accuses him of playing down his intelligence mm-hmm. so that he can just be this regular guy at heart who happens to have written this brilliant book. And whether or not we buy that has a lot to do with how we've seen him through Lipsky's eyes, what we make of the little bits of wisdom that Wallace has shared, which is very down-to-earth, confessional, regular guy stuff, and what we think of Siegel's performance. Is he giving something that's good enough to hint that maybe Wallace is putting on an act here. I'm yeah. not quite so sure about the performance. I think it's very good on the surface level. I think he had me in the moment for almost all of the film. But this idea of is he putting on a show and what sort of show and for whom, I'm not quite sure if the performance gets that deep. Well, I don't know if it does either, but I think it's deep enough that I really want to watch it again. And it's not just because I like the movie overall and enjoy the subject matter, but it's the performance too and how many layers of the performance are going on. There's at least enough there to suggest it's worth investigating a little bit further. I had a tough time with them though, and it's not because I have such a deep attachment to Jason Siegel as an actor in terms of, I mean, I've seen him on screen, sure, in different things. But you don't have an, a persona no, attached to him. No, I don't feel him. like I have a persona attached to him the way we do certain actors. And I certainly don't have it with David Foster Wallace. If you showed me a picture of him and gave me nothing else, I'm culturally aware enough to know that, oh yeah, the bandana and that look and the long hair, that's David Foster Wallace. But otherwise, it's not as if it's someone like Ray Charles or Johnny Cash who I have some relationship with and really can identify any tics or certain appearance aspects that make it seem like it's a caricature or a parody in some way. And yet I did feel it. And I don't hmm. know if it's because there's something about Siegel that I just inherently don't see as deep enough. Somehow he doesn't seem like the type of performer who can carry the weight I want to imbue David Foster Wallace with. Somehow I felt like because of the bandana and the glasses, those were affectations that are unshakable. You can't play him any other way and yet somehow it made it feel like he was putting on a costume yeah and that's another thing i'm wrestling with a little bit yeah i can see what you mean there was no way around it because they are so identifiable with him it makes for another great conversation between them the origin of the band it does you're right and that as we're talking now thinking back on how he describes the bandana it makes perfect sense and it ties practical. into it ties into his ideas of his own insecurity mm-hmm. and how it provides him with some sort of comfort and so you think yeah that makes sense or is he trying to put on this every guy persona like i would never wear something to give myself a look why would i want to and then but then he talks about how that makes him concerned like now i'm worried people are going to think that i exactly. and, and i think that is you know those things i felt are true uh, to the person. Do they inhibit the performance a bit? Yes. I think there are times when you can just tell it's Jason Siegel looking like David Foster Wallace. But I think the performance does get deeper than that. Mm-hmm. And I think it is helped by Jesse Eisenberg because I think the performances really flower in their conversations and the way these two personalities initially spark smart guys, 
writers have a lot in common, a lot in common yeah. shared experiences, and lonely. Yeah. You know, you get this sense that Wallace is incredibly lonely, even though he's made choices to live alone in Bloomington, away from any metropolitan area. He is still lonely, and so they connect at first. And you watch this relationship flower from that to getting worry about each other to outright antagonism. And Eisenberg has, you know, he just, talk about a persona. I mean, this guy that's just, snivelly isn't the right word, but it, it, it's He close. is a little snivelly here. Yeah. He's just so wears on the outside. He wears on the outside what Wallace writes about in this film or talks about when he's pushed is just the neediness. Mm-hmm. You Even as the Eisenberg character is denying it, you see it in full flower. Whereas Foster Wallace, it takes a little bit for him to admit that at the root, I feel the same way. Mm-hmm. And so when they, when they connect on that level... I think their performances both really do sing. I don't disagree with you on anything you're saying about Eisenberg. I was less enamored with his performance than you and than I was with Siegel. And I think that's because I didn't see any new sort of revelations in his character, meaning that Eisenberg persona. I felt like I was seeing another version of it where, yeah, it's the nebbish intellectual and he's always uncomfortable a little bit in his own skin, except when he's performing, which maybe we'll talk about here again in a second with Siegel. Another thing I really appreciate about his performance is, as you said, there's that overriding loneliness, a sense of real world weariness, but it's not pitiful. I never felt him trying to imbue that character with a sense of pity or generating that response in us. And he's got an intelligence that isn't, for lack of a better word, showy. It's not impressive. He's not a smooth talker. He's not like someone Jesse Eisenberg has played before, Mark Zuckerberg, where that verbal acuity is really their strength and they wow you with their ability to think on their feet. Use it as a weapon. Yeah, and use it as a weapon and say things that are really profound. I got the sense watching Siegel that he genuinely was like Every one of us here every day, even if we don't have the mind that he had, he's thought deeply about everything Lipsky is challenging him with, but he is making it up as he goes along. He is answering him in the moment. It's not a case of it's David Foster Wallace, so he's got all these brilliant platitudes and aphorisms on the page that now Siegel just has to orate. You don't get that sense with the performance at all. I mentioned that Eisenberg is really good, though, when he gets to act, when the character gets to act. And I think that that's something he does right, the movie gets right as well, because it is all about these personas and it's about these narratives. And the way the Lipsky character here and Eisenberg can so easily turn on the charm to get what he wants, whether he might be acting that nebbish way to provoke something in David Foster Wallace later when they're around two women. And here we have two performers, one who's the daughter of Meryl Streep and one who's the daughter of Sting. They show up as friends of David Foster Wallace's in Minneapolis at his reading, and they hang out a little bit. The way he flirts with the Betsy character, who he knows used to date David Foster Wallace at one point, his need to get close to her and kind of show David that that he can do this. He can pull this off and be kind of the bigger man in the room. He can get her attention and take it away from him, even if he's doing it subconsciously. He really does pull that off. Eisenberg does. And that's another moment. It occurs to me, and I could be wrong. I'd have to go back and look. But even in a scene, the point of view is so limited to Lipsky that even in a scene where David Foster Wallace is sitting on a couch with the other woman and 
Lipsky and Betsy are in the kitchen together. We never see David and Betsy in the kitchen from David Foster Wallace's point of view. We only know that he's looking at them because the camera cuts from the kitchen yeah, we see him from to the David kitchen. Foster right. Wallace. And it makes him look even more sort of powerless and ineffectual in that moment because he's at a distance and he's looking on sort of helplessly. But then that's what's beautiful about the movie is that we get that fantastic bit of one-upsmanship where he finally does come into the room and he puts Lipsky in his place. But Lipsky has to get his own advantage. (laughs) And how does he do it? By, after all these occasions where he's turned down drinking anything because he knows of a substance problem in Wallace's past, he then decides against the pop he's going to get out of the fridge and he gets... A beer. So that's his little bit. But whether it was before it or after it, I can't remember. Wallace has that end. great scene. Wallace has that great scene in the hotel where Lipsky betrays that his own girlfriend may think that David Foster Wallace is a better writer than him. So what does David Foster Wallace do? He asks Lipsky to call her. And he proceeds to then spend 30 minutes on the phone with her. And you understand why that grates on him so much because that's his opportunity. That's when he can put Lipsky back in his place a little bit and go, look, even your own girlfriend wants to talk to me more than she wants to talk to you. And that's where David Foster Wallace is putting on a performance too, because he changes personality when he gets on the phone with her. And earlier he talks to Lipsky about how he would love to take advantage of groupies on the book tour, but he just doesn't, he doesn't have that sort of a personality where he would actually go after exactly. someone. He would Lipsky wait for them to that. offer. Yeah. But, but what does he do on the phone? Well, then he goes after. And yeah. <laughs> there, there, there's one upsmanship going on over the tabs constantly as well. Who's tab mm-hmm. is every taxi ride every meal going to be on and they both wield you know because Lipsky's working for Rolling Stone he has right. a Rolling Stone tab and Wallace has the book publishers tab yeah. and they're both it's kind about of power. pulling out those cards mm-hmm. to see who and there, there's a great one at the end that's almost a throwaway when they're saying goodbye and Lipsky has finally summoned up the courage or the foolhardiness to give Wallace his own book and makes an offhand comment about how he made sure that they use the same illustration for the British version. Yes. Wallace, just before he can even think, says something how did about you get how that? did you get yeah. that? But it's more like, how did, how did you, you get, get that, that and I didn't? And right there, you know, this is where he reveals that he has been putting on a show because right there... He denies all of that claiming that I'm no smarter than anyone else. I resist all of these yeah, accolades and all the hierarchy of authors because his instinctual response was that I should have had that right for my book cover. I didn't. You, you little novelist I'd ever heard of, you had it. And he lets that slip. And or, that reveals a lot. It does. Or, Josh, the alternate reading that I think is potentially just as valid because the movie sets up this type of dichotomy Is it entirely possible that that's even more of his act? And that's him allowing Lipsky to have a moment of one-upsmanship. He acts like it hurts him that his book didn't have the same cover in the British edition, but he really doesn't care at all. I think it could be both. It could be either. And and it could be another little jab at Lipsky that he's taking. So a lot of mind games going on in this film. There certainly are. In terms of what this movie's about for me or what I really latched onto. Earlier today, I was listening to the new Jason Isbell album, and I was obsessed with his album Southeastern. We played some tracks from that a few years ago when it came out, and then we played a few tracks from his latest album as well back on our Trainwreck show. You mean the show when we reviewed Trainwreck? (laughs) It might have been a Trainwreck, too. (laughs) Just wanted to clarify. Well played. But yes, we reviewed the Amy Schumer movie, and 
today, just randomly, I'm sure this happens to you, Josh, it happens to everyone, even if you've heard a song three, four, thirty times, sometimes a lyric just all of a sudden stands out and makes sense to you, and you really cling to it. And there's a line in his song called Speed Trap Town where he says, well, it's Thursday night, but there's a high school game. Sneak a bottle up the bleachers and forget my name. These 5A bastards run a shallow cross. It's a boy's last dream and a man's first loss. And there's some great poetry there, but I really thought about the metaphor of the football game and what Isbell's getting at. And I think, actually, that's really what this movie's about. It started coming into my head late in this film because David Foster Wallace, of course, is the 5A bastard who has talent and is calling from a playbook that Lipsky simply doesn't have. But those lines are also really about disillusionment, about this moment of innocence lost, right? And innocence lost itself is really a narrative construct that's probably meaningless, but we cling to it. As Americans, we cling to it. I think it seems to be primarily an American preoccupation. And I only mention that because David Foster Wallace directly talks about that multiple times in this film. He frames his own experience within a larger cultural experience repeatedly. But these are 30 and 34-year-old men. David Foster Wallace is the big brother character at 34. They're not exactly the coming-of-age characters like in Ponsult's last film, The Spectacular Now. You'd think that maybe they'd have a few things figured out, but the reality is, and you did crystallize this so perfectly earlier, is that David Foster Wallace, to steal and really strain Isbell's metaphor a little bit more here. He loves playing football, but is realizing that winning 63 to nothing and getting all the acclaim that comes with that doesn't give him any answers and isn't satisfying at all. And that's where he's at at the start of the trip. It's a place that Lipsky only comes to really by the end. And I think you could even argue at the end, does he even fully get that? I think the character that we see at the beginning of the film and at the end of the film, who is the character now looking back on this experience he's probably put that together because now he's fully lived it but even at the end of the film he's still the guy who when he gave his book to david foster wallace and then he gets a package from him later is praying that inside there's some kind of validation yeah he hasn't figured it out yet he hasn't really had that moment of of first loss and he's still in some ways a boy who's clinging to these grandiose notions of what an artist can be or should be. Well, I think the framing device comes into play here. And I would say that one of the strengths of the screenplay by Donald Margulies is this framing device with biopics of any sort. Often that can be the clunkiest aspect. You know, we'll get some beginning at a certain time flashback. And this does that, but much more elegantly. It opens a good time after those days they spent together Mm -hmm. and actually concludes with Lipsky reading from his own book about their time. And there's something very sad about that to me because it is him still aping in a way or searching in a way for that fame that Wallace not only warned him against in their time together, but he saw how fleeting and hollow it really was. And yet here, one way of reading that scene is he's still grasping at it. And how is he grasping at it? Not even really with his own completely original work. No, no. He's grasping at it, at least the character in the film, by in a way, riding coattails still. Yeah. And so there's there's a real sort of tragic irony to that too. And I do like how the structure, this somewhat standard biopic flashback structure, mm-hmm. works well within that theme. So I agree. I'd, give, I'd give Margulies credit for that. Well, I think 
Margulies and Ponsold are smart in that they've made a biopic, and granted, it's not a traditional biopic, even though we do have other examples of this in cinema, where it takes a very set, defined period as opposed to the entire life, but it takes as its subject, really, the inability to understand anything about an artist from that type of brief encounter. So it succeeds in that way where most biopics are precisely about trying to imbue that past, looking back on the past and somehow find meaning in everything. So I think they did have the right approach there. And to what you were saying, Josh, I don't think it's an accident that he finally gets to have some of that acclaim, but it is only to talk about David Foster Wallace. And in a moment mirroring a moment earlier in the film, he goes on NPR to eulogize Foster Wallace, when we saw earlier in the movie David Foster Wallace go on what seemed to be pretty clearly Minnesota public radio and pull off this brilliant routine, though we don't see it. We only hear how people respond to it. We don't see the reading of his his book. No, we don't ever. I think those are nice touches. And I'm going to say, speaking of nice, that this movie most accurately depicts Minnesotans and their niceness. You think so? A a little better than Fargo? A little more fair than Fargo, huh? (laughs) It's a little less grotesque, for lack of a better word, than Fargo. A little less over the top, but it gets that Minnesota nice, though I'm sure now we'll hear from many emailers who will disagree. Speaking of disagreeing, if you didn't like what we had to say about the end of the tour, or maybe you really liked what we had to say about it, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. A bit more on Movie Novelists when we come back. We'll have the results of the film spotting poll asking you to name your favorite film featuring a writer. We have a rewrite here, actually. All work and no play seems to make Jack a winner. Stay with us. I don't know why you mean to me When I call on the telephone Komunis itu kejam. Komunis itu semacam tidak memiliki Tuhan. Para pemberontakan G3 plus PKI untuk melakukan perubahan sistem, mereka melakukan penculikan terhadap Dewan Jen Jenderal. Dewan Jenderal tersebut disayat... Welcome back to Film Spotting, a clip there from documentary director Joshua Oppenheimer's follow-up to his 2012 film The Act of Killing, one of our favorite films of that year. The new one's called The Look of Silence. The Act of Killing, speaking of that movie, Josh, was a movie I'm not sure I've yet recovered from, even two years later. In that film, Oppenheimer captured some startlingly candid interviews with men who participated in Indonesia's 60s-era anti-communist genocide, and it's a subject they speak about freely and explicitly because nobody involved with these crimes has ever been brought to justice. That was one where it ends and you just sit there. Mm -hmm. 
and the credits finish and you're still just sitting there. Absolutely. The clip you just heard from The Look of Silence, that's an elementary school teacher explaining to what looks like a room full of 10 or 11-year-olds why the communists needed to be repressed. It's one of our most anticipated movies of the year, and it's a film that we do plan to review on next week's show. If we're up to it, actually, I know you're up to it because you've already seen it. I have seen it. Similar response, uh, I'll say that it's it's a little less jarring, but probably only because I had a sense of what to expect from The Act of Killing. If I'm remembering correctly, The Act of Killing was a golden brick winner here on Film Spotting. So no matter how good The Look of Silence is, Joshua Oppenheimer, not eligible. I know he's crushed for that award this year. If you haven't seen The Act of Killing yet, it is available via streaming on Netflix in both a theatrical and director's cut. So, Josh, if after you sat there in silence, you really felt like, hey, I need 40 more minutes of this. 40 more minutes. <laughs> you can get that from Oof. the version on Oof. Netflix streaming. Later in the show, we'll get to our top five movies about writers. But first, results from the film spotting poll, which asks you to name the best movie featuring a writer, specifically a non-biopic fiction film featuring, even more specifically, a novelist. Your choices, none of which, I should add, made our top five list, Josh, were Midnight in Paris, Misery, The Shining, Wonder Boys, Young Adult, or Other. How did it come out? Well, unlike our list, these must have been the movies to pick because Other was in last place with only 7%. Young Adult received 8%, then Misery with 10%, and Wonder Boys with 12%. Jumping up a little bit here for second place, Midnight in Paris, 19%, but running away with it was The Shining. Yeah, Kubrick, what are you going to do? Bennett writes, The Shining is obviously the best film on this list by a damn sight, but I'm pleased and surprised to see Young Adult among the choices. I think it's one of the most underrated movies of any kind to come out this decade, and Charlize Theron has never been better. Jason Reitman's film gets my vote for being way better than anyone gives it credit for. Well, she's never been better until Mad Max Fury Road, I Well, would good argue. point. Michael Locker from El Cerrito, California, said some of these movies do more to exploit the uniqueness of the profession, so I drew upon that to form a loose criteria. With that in mind, I threw out Young Adult right off the bat. It's an underappreciated movie, but I'm not sure the lead's career provides much more than the good double entendre of a title. Midnight in Paris. Yeah, it's charming, lyrical, and well-made, but the specifics of the protagonist's career are secondary to Alan's principal interest, making cinematic love to the City of Lights and its role call of heroes. Writing plays a major role, but it's a fantasy confection foremost, which probably could have featured an accountant in the lead, provided he were affably neurotic and self-reflecting. What remains, fittingly enough, are three movies based on the work of two popular novelists, Stephen King and Michael Chabon, and it's Misery, The Shining, and Wonder Boys, which most directly confront the torture of penning fiction, something folks are apparently willing to literally die trying. So which movie gets Michael's vote? Misery. It's pulpy fair, not remotely ambitious. There's no Krzysztof Penderecki music slashing through it and no screenwriting parlor tricks on display. But it's one of those rare films that sets a clear bar and hits every note. A mixed metaphor in movies about writer's feedback. Michael, well done. He continues, so this is a contrarian spoiler vote. Okay, I admit it, but come on. Someone is basically killed by typewriter-induced blunt force trauma. That's worth extra credit in this poll. Thanks a ton, Michael. Misery was a blind spot for me. Uh, what? Ruined forever. My goodness. I'm never going to see it now. Joseph Grantham said, sure, The Shining is the real classic here, but what makes Listen Up Philip my choice is the fact that it's a film about writers of novels that somehow actually feels like a novel. 
All of the performances are excellent, especially the scenes with Jason Schwartzman and Jonathan Price. Even down to the design of fictional book covers, the film is remarkable. And by the end of it all, I was chilled and humored by my immersion into Alex Ross Perry's vision of the New York literary world. In other words, as an aspiring writer myself, the film punched me in the gut in the best way. I had a chance to interview Alex Ross Perry and star Jason Schwartzman. It was unforgettable. It was an unforgettable interview. October 17th. 2014. If you want to click on our interviews page over to filmspotting.net to hear their conversation with me about Listen Up, Philip, a very good film. Stuart Feldstein writes, although I am fond of all the movies suggested, my favorite probably being Midnight in Paris, I had to vote for my favorite movie of all time, The Third Man, in which Joseph Cotton plays Holly Martins, a writer of bad cowboy novels. Is that bad novels or novels about bad cowboys? Good question. It'll haunt us for the ages, Stuart. As Roger Ebert observed, Holly's journey is one from the innocence of a writer of black hat slash white hat cowboy stories to post-war disillusionment in which it's not always possible to tell the good guys from the bad. I don't know, Stuart. I love The Third Man, too, but that sounds like trying to shove your favorite movie (laughs) into a poll, doesn't it? And you're not going to give him credit for that? (laughs) All right. Good job. Michael Sackowicz says, I put in other vote for Romancing the Stone. Hey, Stay tuned, that Michael. sounds familiar. Yeah, Josh may just have your back. Finally, David writes, I am a writer, a doctor, a nuclear physicist, a theoretical philosopher, but above all, I am a man. Hopelessly inquisitive man, just like you. David says, I got my answer fixed for a couple more hypothetical poll questions. Indeed, when we do our top five movies about theoretical, theoretical philosophers, philosophers, doctors, nuclear physicists, the master is probably going to be my number one for all. I'm with you, David. We'll get there. Trust me, we'll get there. Our producer, though, our co-producer, Sam Van Halgren, does give an F- minus to all of the writers of feedback, despite... The very insightful, articulate, eloquent what, responses. What's his problem? Because all of them failed to include their location along oh, with their names. Yeah. Despite our constant cajoling, we don't ask for much, people. Just tell us where you're writing from. It means so much to us. That brings us to this week's poll question, which looks ahead a couple of weeks to our plan review of Noah Baumbach's latest and his second film of 2015, Watch Your Back, Woody Allen, Mistress America. It stars and is co-written by Baumbach's Francis Hostar. Greta Gerwig. This is Gerwig's third film with Baumbach. She played second fiddle to Ben Stiller in 2010's Greenberg. So for the purposes of this poll, Josh, we're going to go ahead and refer to Gerwig as Baumbach's muse. Though the pair are much more creative collaborators than perhaps the other pairs that appear in this question, though I don't know if that's necessarily true. I think think you could definitely argue with some of them that whether the actress in question had a writing credit or not, the collaboration simply wouldn't have been as fruitful or as unforgettable if it wasn't because of the dynamic of the relationship between director and star. So with that, the question, who is your favorite director-muse pair? The options are... Woody Allen and Diane Keaton, who made seven films together, including Annie Hall in Manhattan, of course. Woody Allen, sense a theme here, yeah. we're also including Woody Allen and Mia Farrow. They actually made nine films together from Midsummer Night's Sex Comedy in 82 to 1992's Husbands and Wives. And Ingmar Bergman and Liv Allman, who also made nine films together, including Persona, Scenes from a Marriage, Cries and Whispers, and Bergman's final film, Saraband. David Lynch and Laura Dern, three films, Blue Velvet, Wild at Heart, and Inland Empire. They're also the only pair on here that were not also in a romantic relationship. As far as we know. But we're letting them in. Last option, Roberto Rossellini and Ingrid Bergman. Their five films are Stromboli, Europa 51, Journey to Italy, Fear, and Joan of Arc at the Stake. And this one, a little plug for my class, even though my class is over, it appears really solely because we're actually watching Europa 51 
in class this week. So I'm all things Rossellini and Bergman right now. You may be hearing those options and thinking, where's Alfred Hitchcock and Grace Kelly or Tippi Hedren or maybe Josh, as you suggested, Zhang Yimou and Gong Li. Or what happened to them? You'll find out in a moment. What about Akira Kurosawa and Toshiro Mufuni or John Ford and John Wayne? We did have some pretty strict criteria here to have it relate most closely with Baumbach and Gerwig and Mistress America. We were thinking of directors who are also writers and their female stars. And we did factor in that, like Gerwig and Baumbach, they are romantically involved or were at one point romantically involved with, again, Lynch and Laura Dern being the only exception. If you're also thinking about Quentin Tarantino and Uma Thurman, and maybe we should, but we did have a three-movie requirement. And, well, we're going to call Kill Bill 1 and 2 one film, even though I don't consider them one film. It works for this poll, Josh. Deathmatch rules do apply. You choose one director slash muse pair. The rest burn. All their films are gone forever. Who do you pick, Josh? Well, my head is absolutely spinning because of all of these qualifications. Of course. Ruled, which, which I think is what you designed to do, to just confuse Okay, me. so let's let's so, go back real so quick. I, Woody and I Diane it. Keaton, Woody and Mia, you're not yep. going with them because you're well, not a big Woody Allen okay. guy. No, so I might be because when you look at the films on the list, the Woody Allen films, having not seen all of them, but the ones that I hold up the highest are some of these that are on this list, the ones with Diane Keaton, when you're talking about Manhattan and Annie Hall. So I lean that way. The Bergman-Ullman films, though, those are ones that I have not seen all of them. Mm -hmm. The ones I have seen are just about as strong in my mind. So it makes it really tough. Lynch and Dern I'd love to go with, but I'm just not an Inland Empire apologist. So I'm going to sit a while between those other two options and try to think about it. It's either Bergman and Ullman or Keaton and Allen. Okay, well, I wonder if Sam's IMDb searching is correct because I didn't realize that Allen and Keaton had done seven films together. And of course, I think right away of Annie Hall and Manhattan, which are two of my three favorite Woody Allen films. So I can't live in a world where there's no Annie Hall in Manhattan. That's that's simply not possible. At the same time, Woody and Mia made two of my four favorite Woody Allen films, which are Crimes and Misdemeanors and Hannah and Her Sisters. And then I think when you look at stuff like Broadway, Danny Rose and Purple Rose of Cairo and Husbands and Wives, that outweighs some of the work that Allen and Keaton did in stuff like Manhattan Murder Mystery. So I don't know what I'm going with there. And then I go to Bergman and Liv Ullman. I'm with you. There are films like Persona and Scenes from a Marriage and even Cries and Whispers. I mean, these are groundbreaking films. So it's between those three. I don't know. Give me another two weeks. I'll come back with an answer. I can't do it on the spot. The options are just too good. We want to know what you think. Vote now for your favorite director muse pair at filmspotting.net. And yes, we'll say it again. If you leave a comment and we hope you do, please let us know where you're writing from. Top five time when we return a revisit of our 2012 list of the top five movies about writers. Was that a final draft, Adam, or can we still make edits? Stay with us.
donation and thank you time, and we will get to a very clever card we got in the mail, Josh, here in a second. But first, wanted to mention our featured music this week, tracks from the end of the tour soundtrack, of course, tying in with our review, though that's not entirely true because the REM song you heard in the first break was not Perfect Circle, which appears on the end of the tour soundtrack, but Strange Currencies, which, according to an interview I found online, is a song that apparently David Foster Wallace loved. Lipsky mentions that in his book. Which is the R.E.M. song that opens the film? I'm guessing it has to be Perfect Circle. I think it's one of the first tracks that's listed on the soundtrack. But we wanted to feature Strange Currencies. And then the second track, the song you literally just got done hearing, I don't know what you heard because I'm going to give Sam the choice. And he gets to play God. He gets to be the arbiter of musical taste, which he really should be. He should be the czar of musical taste for the country, I think, if not the world. I gave him two options, Josh, based on the film we just saw. I loved hearing Tracy Ullman's, yes, Tracy Ullman's They Don't Know, which was a 1983 remake of a British hit from 1979, or Our Lips Are Sealed. Did you catch at one point that Go-Go song, though redone by the band Funboy 3, who I'm not familiar with until I looked this up? That song plays during one of their long drives in the movie, and it did stand out to me because, hey, I'm a Go-Go's fan. So Sam gets the choice. He gets to decide which one he wants to feature, and we'll have to find out. I'll find out when I hear the finished show. I have all of Funboy 3's albums. (laughs) Of course you do. Let's get to donations. We got a donation this week from Matthew D. in Chicago. Matthew, keep up the film writing, which you have recently rekindled. A $5 a month donation from Edward G. in Los Angeles, California. And a new Buck a Show donation comes to us from the right reverend, longtime listener, longtime film spotting supporter, Robert Lewis in Damascus, Maryland. Hearing the two of you use my email to you concerning Dr. Zhivago and my encouragement to not watch it, plus the two of you answering some questions I have emailed you over the last few months, reminding me that was past time for my twice-yearly donation. While I'm glad the two of you did not find it boring and found it worth watching afterward, I'll stick to my opinions on it. However, with Josh pointing to the apocalyptic elements in it, I may consider, and Robert's trying to trick me here. <laughs> he's with, trying to uh, trick you. <laughs> a phrase we have vowed not to use, but basically he's going to consider taking another look. Yeah. Also, due to the two of you briefly bringing up the topic of reading the book a movie is based on, I am sending you both a copy of the book, Dr. Zhivago. <laughs> As if... The movie wasn't long enough. We're going to try to wade through the book. Are you kidding? I'm going to hold Zhivago in one hand, Infinite Jest in the the other, other. and lift weights. Yeah, Basically, I'm going to be buff. You'll fall over one way or the other. But thank you so very much, Robert, for the book and for your kind words and support of the show. More on Zhivago here in a moment. We also got this Silver Club donation from Keith Geiger, another longtime listener and supporter of the show in Ocean City, Maryland. And I like to share this note here. I love hearing from listeners who have taken up, whether it's film writing or filmmaking or film teaching, instructing. In this case, Keith says, last month I taught a film class for high school students. It wasn't really a class, but more of a week-long film club where we examine a different genre each day. We watch two movies a day with about an hour discussion after each. Because I'm always going on about film spotting, my wife had first suggested the idea. I pitched it to the administration and they said that they usually don't offer camps for high school kids because of work, the beach, etc. But I panhandled, pleaded, worked the lunchroom, and ended up with 16 students signed up. It was about 10 more than I expected. As the time for the camp approached, I suddenly realized that I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I designed a schedule, did my homework, which included watching the movie, taking notes, reading up on the film and the genre, and most importantly, listening to the film spotting episode in which the film was discussed. So, Josh, 
why don't you go ahead and share Keith's lineup? I think it's a good one. Maybe it will be inspiration for other film instructors out there. Not every one of these movies has been discussed or reviewed in detail on the show, but most of them, most of them have. So Keith started with Film Noir, and they viewed Double Indemnity and Brick. Documentary Day was The Thin Blue Line and Man on Wire. For Sci-Fi, 2001 and Alien. The Western genre, oh, interesting choices here. Meek's Cutoff and Unforgiven. And then for comedy, Duck Soup, Raising Arizona, and Best in Show. Just for you, Duck Soup and the Marx Brothers, Josh. Keith adds that it was very successful. The students and I had a great time. I wanted to thank you not only for your thoughtful, articulate analysis of the films, but also for the general inspiration to have the camp. I've been listening to film spotting since the Sam Van days, and without it, would never have become so engaged, so learned, or so confident in interacting with film. Of course, I wore my film spotting t-shirt one day, and maybe even got a few of them listening to the show. Thank you guys so much. Miraculously, I was even paid to do it, so I think it's only fair that I give you a cut. There will be a donation in honor of Mr. Guy film camp coming soon wow thanks Just warms the heart hey if he's figured out how to do something like that and get paid for yeah. it i mean that's a lot <laughs> of people secret, haven't Keith? figured that out yet Keith. panhandling pleading it's kind of what we're doing here during this segment josh let's close with a little bit of dr shivago talk we're getting some feedback people responding to our sacred cow or actually our blind spotting discussion is what it was of course and i couldn't help but share this from another longtime listener justin zimmerman in philly He sent us a card, and we don't get a lot of cards. We especially don't get cards that come in the form of condolence cards. And this one actually had on the inside, thinking of you in your sorrow and wishing you strength in the days ahead. Why don't you read what Justin had to offer us here? Having heard of your plan to watch the dreaded Dr. Z, I wish to express my condolences for your loss. Totaling the time for Adam plus Josh plus spouses comes to roughly 15 quintillion hours, the equivalent of an entire lifetime wasted and forever lost, RIP. Perhaps you realized your mistake during the interminable and seemingly unending opening scene, which one character babbles to another about still more (laughs) characters we've never met, let alone care about. I'm sorry, that was unfair. I just wanted to interject that... He's talking about the opening scene, but the overture. There's like a four and a half minute overture. Oh, lovely. And Josh is such a purist that I was waiting for him to fast forward. Josh made us sit there. Imagine this. Josh and Adam sitting on opposite couches. Debbie wasn't in the room for the overture. She was smart. She was off <laughs> getting a beer or something. But we were sitting on opposite couches, staring at a screen, listening to music together. I thought it was magical. I'm sure you did. And, and you broke the mood by saying you're not going to fast forward this yeah i did and my respect for you plummeted it's music it wasn't (laughs) you you miss the transition of the seasons Mm. of the painterly birch trees and you're the one who went on and on about the flowers in the review that's true transitioning and okay back to they were such a potent metaphor you have to watch them plus it's like a four-hour movie what are what six minutes All right. Anyways, Justin continues. Alec Guinness didn't babble. He intoned in the most stodgy and tedious manner ever captured on celluloid, a true cinematic marvel. Perhaps at minute 23,451 in this protracted introduction, the four of you decided to sacrifice the dreaded Dr. Z and save yourselves. It's okay if you did. I won't tell. Love the show. Justin Zimmerman in Philly. So obviously sent to us before we discussed it. I wonder if Justin decided to not just sit through the overture, but sit through our entire 30-minute conversation about the movie. I let the intermission play, too. Did Can you I just that? tell? I did. Of course you did, Josh. And 
I should probably mention, I almost tweeted about it, but I realized that 140 characters just wasn't enough. So I'll mention it here because we joked so much about whether we'd ever get a chance to see this movie and what it would take to see this movie. And we finally decided that the only way it was going to happen was if we devoted a show to it, forced ourselves to watch it, and we made a night out of it, like going to your house to watch the movie Basically a double date night, but kind of a sad and pathetic double date night (laughs) sitting on your couches watching Dr. Zhivago. So that was our plan. So my wife and I, we struggle. We cannot find a babysitter. It's looking like there's no way this is going to happen. This whole effort was cursed. Yeah, it it was, as you'll hear in a moment. So at the last minute, after all of our options being exhausted, a family friend checks in and they said, hey, did you ever find anyone? We could do it. I'll even bring my boys over who are friends of my boys, my two youngest. So we're thinking, great, this is our salvation. This is going to happen. The double date's on. We tell you it's on. They come over. They bring their boys. We get five minutes from our house on our way to the Larsons. We get a phone call from the babysitter who informs us that one of her boys fell in our backyard and broke his arm. We had to immediately turn around. I believe the term you used home. on the phone was "it's deformed." Well, it wasn't <laughs> you were, that bad. You were quite dramatic about it. I'm a little melodramatic. What could I say, Josh? But I mean, really thinking about this being cursed. I mean, it looked like it was off, and Sarah had to go home. Sarah missed out on Doctor Shivago. I don't know that she's that disappointed about it, but she missed out because I knew again the only way I was going to see it is if I went and sat on the couch and was the third wheel. You Josh were the and third Debbie, wheel. And I was. Yeah. So thank you for allowing me in. It was all right. Could have been a big romantic night watching that apocalyptic film, but <laughs> Debbie I would have made it. me fast forward the overture. <laughs> There's a reason why Debbie and I get along even better than me and you do, Josh. <laughs> You're listening to Film Spotting. It's top five time, and this week, proof that in the 10 years of the show, we've covered every possible top five topic. We needed a top five tie in for our review earlier in the show of the two writers in a car movie, The End of the Tour. Boom, July 2012. There it is, top five movies about writers. We're going to put the show on autopilot, Josh. I've been on autopilot since the billboard. <laughs> Back in 2012, that top five was inspired by our review of Movie I Forgot Existed, Ruby Sparks, even though I liked it. I like Ruby Sparks, featuring Paul Dano as the writer with writer's block and Zoe Kazan as the fictional girl he wills into existence through his writing. No one needs to go back and revisit Ruby Sparks. Oh, now. Is the end of the tour a future film that time forgot? Or, Josh, would you retroactively make room for it on your top five list? Would you at least consider it? Yeah, oh, I would consider it. I would, it. too. Yeah, I don't I know if I'm enough, quite yeah. ready to bump it onto that list, but uh, I'd give it some consideration. Okay, well, let's get into the top five now with a clip from a great film, but not one that will be making our list for reasons we will explain shortly. You think you're the only writer that can give me that Barton Fink feeling? I got 20 writers under contract I can ask for a Fink-type thing from! You swell-headed hypocrites, you just don't get it, do you? You think the whole world revolves around whatever rattles inside that little head of yours? Get him out of my sight, Lou! I want him in town, though. He's still under contract. I want you in town, Fink. And out of my sight. 
That's a scene from the great Coen Brothers film, Barton Fink. Of course, ties in nicely with our top five theme this week, Movies About Writers. It really ties in directly with the film we discussed earlier in the show, Ruby Sparks, because Barton is suffering from writer's block. Just is there like anything Calvin is less sympathetic than writer's block in terms of a narrative? I, I mean, this comes from a guy who right. writes, and you see someone sitting at a typewriter, and they yeah. just can't write. Well, no, well, you know, that's well, funny well. you say that, though, because you complained about, in Ruby Sparks, how we get some of those same cliched scenes of writers suffering from writer's block. I'll be honest with you. Maybe it's because I loathe the writing process so much, <laughs> it hurts me so much to write, that when I saw Paul Dano sit down in front of that typewriter You're and have him. that Barton Fink moment, I felt for him. All right. I didn't care how cliched it was. <laughs> I felt the anguish there in that moment. But we should note that while Barton Fink is a great movie about a writer, it is really more of a movie about a screenwriter. Yes. It's about a playwright turned screenwriter. It's a movie about Hollywood. It's a movie about the movies. We've done that list a couple times here on Film Spotting. So we decided for this list of writers, we were going to exclude screenwriters. So you're also not going to hear any more Joe Gillis or Sunset Boulevard mm-hmm. references in this show. We also aren't going to talk about reporters. No journalists. We've done top five movies about journalism on the show as well. So a movie like All the President's Men, which is in the Pantheon, a movie like Almost Famous, which is in my personal Pantheon, those aren't going to come up. If you do want to see those lists, you can check out the Film Spotting Top 5 archive at filmspotting.net. So with those restrictions, how did you form your list, Josh? My basic guideline was that I wanted the writing to be more than a character trait. The movie didn't necessarily have to be about writing, the act of writing per se, but the fact that the character is a writer did need to be integral to the story in some way. Does that make sense? It does. All right. I'm going to start with Old Acquaintance, which is a 1943 film in which Betty Davis plays Kit Marlowe, a semi-successful novelist. She's been published, gotten good reviews, hasn't made a lot of money. She returns to her hometown and reconnects with a childhood friend named Millie, played by Miriam Hopkins. Millie's inspired to write her own books, partly because Kit has mentioned her in a thank you note, I think, or something like that in one of her books. And so this little taste of notoriety has gotten Millie to want to write her own books. She writes popular romance novels, and they prove to be these blockbusters, and she just churns them out. So it sort of sets up a rivalry in the film, although they remain friends as the years go by. It's sort of this tension-filled friendship that they have. What I liked about it, and this is a melodrama on the surface, and not everything works, but what I did like about it, especially for this list, is how these two characters sort of capture both sides of a writer's id. You have the one that's driven by the creative impulse, just enjoys the act of writing, does good work, and that's enough. And that, of course, is Betty Davis's kit. Then you have the ego part that does want the attention, wants the byline, wants the fame, or in this case, also the success that comes with it. So if you put these two characters together, they kind of form this complete writer. Sounds like a great pick. It's a movie I'm not familiar with. What year was it again? 1943. I'm with you. When I looked at my list, of course, I tried to come up with picks where the writer and the writing aspect of the story was a crucial part of the narrative. For example, Jules and Jim is one of my favorite movies ever made. And Jules is a writer, but if you watch that film, he could probably be just about anything. Mm-hmm. I don't know that the fact that he's a writer really plays a major part in the story. So a film like that gets left out. I will, of course, say right off the bat that my film, my go-to movie, Atonement, is in my personal yeah. penalty box. Recently, right? Yeah, recently, recently I put, I put it, it there. Just so in time. That's the only mention of Atonement you're going to get throughout this list. For my number five, I'm going to go back to another film from the 40s and another one where you've got a split 
in the writer's personality. So there's some symmetry to our picks here. It is the Billy Wilder film from 1945, The Lost Weekend. I think of it more as a drinking movie than a writing yeah, movie. So do I'll I. admit that. But I think why I like it, Josh, is that those two aspects to his psyche are inextricably linked. This is the film, of course, starring Ray Milan and Jane Wyman. And he's a character, Don Burnham, who sees himself really as a fractured individual. He's Don the writer and he's Don the drunk. And at one point he even explains that he was convinced early on that he was a Hemingway type talent. He was a great writer. And it's only when he started to doubt himself that he took comfort in drinking. He also thinks that he can only develop his good ideas while he's drunk, but by the time he's sober, he's forgotten those ideas. So obviously this is a real hindrance to his personal life and to his professional life, and there's a great sequence in the film, very memorable sequence, where you know he's hit rock bottom when he finally goes to pawn the typewriter, when he finally has to go get drinking money by going out on Yom Kippur of all days, so the pawn shop is closed, and he can't find anybody who will take his typewriter from him. By the end of the film, what he finally comes to realize is that Don the Drunk, Don the Writer, he's got to embrace the fact that that's who he is. They're both equal parts of him. And he finally starts to kind of turn his writing inward, and he writes about who he is. So with all that in mind, even though at first I dismissed it as a drinking movie, no, it's really about the fractured psyche of a writer. So The Lost Weekend's my number five. All right, you sold me. I did consider it. Nice. But yeah, nice work. Number four for me, let's jump way ahead to a movie from the 80s, Romancing the Stone. Everyone thinks of this as an Indiana Jones knockoff, but those who are students of 1980s adventure films know that it's actually much more. It's directed by Robert Zemeckis, who I'm beginning to realize might just be the most mentioned director on my top five list so Maybe far. So. I don't know what that says. I forgot that he directed Romancing the Stone. I did too. Honestly, I picked this before I, I remembered never that. Thought of that. And I really Zemeckis. like, I have a soft spot for Romancing the Stone. That relationship, that chemistry with Kathleen Turner and Michael Douglas worked for me. It's a really good little movie. Michael Douglas plays the movie's Indiana Jones figure, American bird exporter Jack T. Colton. Don't you love that? Really, though, this is the story of Kathleen Turner's Joan Wilde. She's a romance novelist who's traveled to Columbia to pay a ransom for her kidnapped sister. There's a bit of meta fun going on here with the fact that Joan is a romance novelist, especially in the way the movie plays with the idea of storytelling. The end, this is probably where it becomes the most clear. Joan passes off her adventures as her latest manuscript, and the movie comes to a finale that would indeed even be outrageous for a romance novel. I really love that you picked this movie because, like I said, I think it's a good film, but also... I don't think it's ever been mentioned in seven and a half years here on Film Spotting. How did you let that it's pass? It's probably never come up, not even in a Nostalgia Picks Top 5 or an 80s movie Top 5. Clearly so, an oversight. Thank you, Josh. My number four is an obvious choice, but I couldn't overlook it here. It is the debut film from Bennett Miller, Capote, starring Philip Seymour Hoffman in his Oscar-winning role as the famous author who wrote In Cold Blood. The fact that we see that six-year process of how he wrote this book it did end up becoming one of the best books of its type ever written, sort of ushering in a new style of journalism, of new nonfiction writing. And what you see play out here that's really fascinating for the writer is the way he becomes attached to the characters he's writing about, specifically Perry, and starts to feel some sympathy for him. And you get to that end scene, you get to the close of this film and that great moment between Truman Capote and Harper Lee where he seems upset that he wasn't able to do anything to help them as, of course, they're going to be executed. And she's got the great line, maybe not, but the fact is you didn't want to. And it does open up that question, not just about his personality, but the personality of the writer. You want to finish your story. It's got to end a certain way. It's going to be a better book 
if it ends dramatically with them being executed. So there's that question at work throughout the whole film as well. A ton in there about the writing process. For me, I thought maybe that skewed a little too close to journalism. I don't know if you consider the, I know it's a book, but we'll let it go. Thank you. We'll let it go. Number three for me is An Angel at My Table. I thought about including Jane Campion's Bright Star, which was from 2009 about John Keats. But then I remembered she had made a far better film about a writer, and that is An Angel at My Table. This was originally made as a television miniseries and released in 1990 as a feature. It's based on multiple autobiographies by New Zealand author Janet Frame, who battled mental illness, was institutionalized for a time, and still managed to produce 11 novels, short stories, poetry, and the autobiographies I mentioned. It's been a while since I've seen this, and I never actually wrote a review, so I'm going to let critic Amy Tobin, who wrote the film's Criterion Collection liner notes, speak for me. By keeping Janet in the center of almost every shot, Campion suggests that, despite the difficulties her heroine experiences in her social relationships and her sense of not fitting any of the institutional roles prescribed for her, she has a remarkably strong sense of self, which will eventually become manifest in her writing. It's as if she were looking at the world through an open window deep within her. What's striking about Frame's writing is how direct and personal it is, and also how utterly lacking in narcissism. The modesty of Frame's style demanded an act of self-effacement on the part of the filmmaker, who brilliantly channeled her onto the screen. So An Angel at My Table is my number four. Well, it's one of my big regrets. It's a film that I saw come up on a lot of lists online when people are talking about writing movies, but one I couldn't catch up with. So I'm glad it made your top five. You're listening to Film Spotting. Adam and Josh sharing our top five movies about writers, tying in with our discussion earlier of the new film Ruby Sparks. For my number three, I'm going with a film made by and starring Mr. Annette Benning. Warren Beatty. It is the movie Reds from 1981. It's actually a film that was just discussed on Film Spotting streaming video mm-hmm. unit, yep. our sister podcast. And I'm going to say, even though Matt Singer and Alison Wilmore did a great job talking about it, they did not properly appreciate the genius of Reds. I'm a huge fan of this film. And even though John Reed, kind of like Capote, is a character known as a journalist, I'm going to say there's a little bit of difference when he writes a book. He, of course, chronicled the Russian Revolution with 10 Days That Shook the World. But he's not the only writer we meet in this movie. And we also see him doing lots of other types of writing throughout the movie. He meets and falls in love with Diane Keaton's Louise Bryant. And through their relationship, she realizes that writing for her is going to become her escape. And it's something that she uses to try and express herself. And then, of course, who does she at one point when she's on a little break from Jack, who does she develop a relationship with but the great playwright Eugene O'Neill. Jack Nicholson is brilliant as O'Neill in this film and has some of the best lines in the movie, including, I'd like to kill you, but I can't, so you can do whatever you want to, except not see me. And I could go on and on quoting O'Neill. Small part in the film, but definitely a standout part. And for people who missed the episode of Film Spotting SVU where Matt and Allison talked about Reds, I'm going to go ahead and steal Matt's clip. The great scene he used from the film to actually make a point against the movie is a scene I want to use to help reflect why I chose it for my list. It's later in the film, much later in the film, where Jack has been recruited by the communists. They're taking him on a tour of the world. He's actually in the Middle East, and he's been writing these speeches and giving these speeches, but they've been translating it differently. They've been changing his words to try to really inflame the people he's talking to, and he doesn't take to that very well. Zinoviev, did you do the translations of my speech? I supervised it, yes. I didn't say holy war, I said classical. I took a liberty of ordering a phrase or two. Yes, well, I don't allow people to take those liberties with what I write. 
Country propagandist enough to utilize what moves people most. I'm propagandist enough to utilize the truth. And who defines this truth? You or the party? Is your life dedicated to speaking for yourself? You don't talk about what my life is dedicated to. Your life? You haven't resolved what your life is dedicated to. You see yourself as an artist and at the same time as a revolutionary, as a lover to your wife, but also as a spokesman for the American Zenobia, party. if you don't think a man can be an individual and be true to the collective, or speak for his own country and the international at the same time, or love his wife and still be faithful to the revolution, you don't have a self to give. Would you ever be willing to give yourself to this when revolution? When you separate you? a man from what he loves the most, what you do is purge what's unique in him. And when you purge what's unique in him, you purge dissent. Kamrad, and when you purge dissent, you kill the revolution. Revolution is dissent. Kamrad, you don't rewrite what I write. No. So I really love that speech and the fact that he's talking about the sanctity of the written word. He wants it reflected exactly how he wrote it, expressed exactly the way he meant it to be. So for me, it really does qualify as a great movie about not just a journalist, but about writers. I did not even think of Red, so great surprise. Okay, so all that arguing and all that proving I was trying to do, you weren't even going to take issue with it. No, I'm just going to have to agree. Fantastic. What's your number two, Josh? (laughs) Let's move on to number two then. Stranger Than Fiction, directed by Mark Forster, but I'm going to give most of the credit here to screenwriter Zach Helm because this feels very much like a writing exercise a scribbler used to break a case of what? Yes, writer's block again. Now, these exercises don't always make for good stories themselves, but it did in this case. Will Farrell plays Harold Crick, an obsessive-compulsive IRS agent whose ordered existence unravels when a woman's voice begins narrating his life. It turns out the narrator is a novelist, played by Emma Thompson, having trouble finishing her book about Harold Crick, of course. Hello? Is this Karen Eiffel? Yes. My name is Harold Crick. I believe you're writing a story about me. I'm sorry? My, my name is Harold Crick. Is this a joke? No. No, I work for the IRS. My name, Miss Eiffel, is Harold Crick. And when I go through the files at work, I hear a deep and endless ocean. Not only is this about the act of writing in many ways, but there's some lovely novelistic material that drops us right into the mind of the main character here. I also think that this is probably one of Farrell's best performances that he's given, although... I just saw Casa de Mi Padre last night, and that's close. Really? It's a really good movie. I think I found my dumb comedy of the year, but that's for another time. Okay, that's for another episode of Film Spotting. I like Stranger Than Fiction. I remember thinking it was a solid film when we discussed it here on the show, but you consider it a very good film? I really do, yeah. And the more I get away from it, the more it seems to offer. So really like Stranger Than Fiction. All right. My number two movie about writing and writers is a film that I think really does express that need, that overwhelming desire to express yourself in a way that certainly no other film on my list does, and it is the film The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. An amazing movie, a true story about Jean-Dominique Bobby, who was the editor-in-chief of Elle magazine in France, and at a pretty young age suffered a stroke and was left paralyzed with what's called locked-in syndrome. So he's basically fully functioning in terms of his mind, but cannot move any part of his body, except in this case, he can blink one eyelid. And through that, and with the help of some other people and some nurses, he manages to develop a form of communication through blinking and ends up writing his memoir, ends up writing the story of his life through that process. From what I read online, it took 200,000 blinks to write, and an average word took approximately two minutes. 
So think about that. Think about how easy it is for us to write what we want, to express ourselves the way we are right now. The patience required of that man to blink out his life story. The book came out in March of 1997, was a hit, and he died three days after. And it's easy to wax poetic about that and almost wonder if after finally getting that all out, he could finally rest in peace. But it's a tough movie to watch at times because early on you're locked in with Bo B in terms of the camera, what director Julian Schnarbel does. You feel that claustrophobia you want out, and finally you do. And one of the ways you get out is through the memoir sequences where he's writing and he starts to let his imagination go a little bit and reflect on moments from his past it's a really remarkable, breathtaking film. So The Diving Bell and the Butterfly is my number two. You beat me to the punch. It's my number one. I knew it'd be on your list. Yeah. I what? almost emailed you and said, don't do it. Don't steal my pick. I, I had to do it I, because it was number one right away. The physical realities of this film are so overwhelming, as you described, that you do almost forget the movie is anchored around this truly audacious writing project. I don't know if you could say that writing is specifically the true subject of the film, but and I'll be brief because you pretty much captured everything that's great about it. I do think that The Diving Bell and the Butterfly communicates better than any film I can think of why we do struggle so mightily to write. Not always in those sorts of terms, but still, we struggle to be heard. Mm -hmm. And that's really what the movie is about. All right, that brings us to my number one. And it's a film that I had actually behind The Diving Bell and the Butterfly up until just before we sat down to record, actually. And I also had considered leaving it off completely because longtime listeners will recognize this film as one of my movies, a film I seem to love all out of proportion compared to the rest of the world. And for that reason, it could go in the penalty box and I should just ignore it. But as I really thought about the movies that had the most impact on me, the movies that really made me think about the life of the writer, it is the George Roy Hill film from the 80s, The World According to Garp, an adaptation of the John Irving novel. I watched this movie so many times as a kid, a way too young kid in the 80s. It most recently made our top five mother-son movies. I couldn't leave it off, though, because it's a movie with an early dramatic performance from Robin Williams where at a young age, the character Garp discovers that he wants to be a writer. And it seems to be the one thing that he has that his very well-meaning but domineering mother, played wonderfully by Glenn Close, can't touch. It's something he has all to himself. And then there's a great part in the film where she goes and she just decides she's going to be a writer too. As if being a writer, being an artist on some level, was just something you could decide to a do. choice. Yeah. yeah, and she doesn't have any of the angst about it. It's not as if she has to be born with any talent or hone her craft. She just says, one day I'm going to be a writer. And not only does she write a book, she of course goes on to be a huge feminist icon and the book is a gigantic hit. And then we see later in the film this really interesting shift with Garp and his mission as a writer where he goes from writing kind of self-indulgent fiction to all of a sudden having a purpose and making a political statement and the ramifications of that decision actually kind of falling into line with his mom. And we see how both he and his mom become targets for taking a stand in their writing. So whenever this movie's come up over the past seven and a half years, I always mention that it had a big impact on me because I really think that watching Garp embrace the desire to be a writer, to express himself artistically, is something that eventually made me want to be an English major and read books and potentially be a filmmaker someday. And why I'm sitting here talking about films right now, I can really trace back to watching The World According to Garp at eight or nine and that creative impulse that came out of that film. So it's my number one. I knew it was going to be on your list. Did you? It, it probably is penalty box time. I, I'm sorry to say. I'll put it there. I'll put it there. No argument from me, Josh. What about honorable mentions? 
Honorable mentions, we should probably get Misery out of the way. I'll be completely honest. I've never seen it. And it lost out Saturday night. I was about to watch it and was vetoed. We had to catch up with some Curb Your Enthusiasm. My apologies. Well, we're going to hear about that one a lot. But I'm just looking at my list of honorable mentions in my top five. And I've got Misery coming in at about number 20. Wow. There were a lot to pick from, I got to say. There were a ton. Naked Lunch is another one that I wanted to catch up with. It didn't come in the mail quickly enough. Ingmar Bergman's Through a Glass Darkly, another one I've never seen. Funny Farm, I wanted to put on this list, Funny but, Farm. but I didn't think Film Spotting Nation a bad film. would allow me to put Funny Farm and Romancing the Stone on the same I list. I think you chose so. wisely. <laughs> For me, the movies that were really the toughest to leave off, Wonder Boys at one point was certainly in mm-hmm. my top five. Sideways was in my top five. I'm also a big fan of Synecdoche, New York, I think qualifies for this list. Another Charlie Kaufman movie adaptation is about a screenwriter, but you could also make the case that Susan Orlean That's true. is a novelist. She's also a journalist, though. Yeah. But you see that part. That's a movie you could at least make the case for with this film. Stand By Me is another one I considered. The Front, the film starring Woody Allen about the Hollywood blacklist in the 50s. And even though I'm going to get grief from a certain listener about this, you have to at least throw The Shining out there as an honorable mention. Wendy, let me explain something to you. Whenever you come in here and interrupt me, you're breaking my concentration. You're distracting me. And it will then take me time to get back to where I was. Understand? Yeah. Fine. And we're going to make a new rule. Whenever I'm in here, you hear me typing. Whether you don't hear me typing, what the f*** you hear me doing in here when I'm in here, that means that I am working. That means don't come in. How do you think you can handle that? A little trip down memory lane there from July 2012, our top five movies about writers. And we have some of your feedback in response to that top five to share with you now. Bill Morency from Montpelier, Vermont, said, Just listen to your piece on films about writers and want to bring to your attention an extraordinary Japanese film, The Mystery of Rampo. This film deals with the inner slash outer life of Edugawa Rampo while he wrestles with creating his new novel. His name is an adaptation of Edgar Allan Poe. He writes in the style of Poe. The visuals and music are beautiful. And all in all, it's the best film I've ever seen on the creative process. Check it out. Sounds good, Bill. It sounds great. And I'm certainly familiar with the title, but have not sadly seen that movie. We also heard from James R. Janowski. Regarding your top five movies about writers, you should definitely watch Elaine Renee's 1977 film Providence, starring John Gilgood and Ellen Burstyn. Enjoy. He had me at Renee, Gilgood, and Burstyn. Aviv Rubenstein in L.A. Come on, guys. Misery. We had a little bit of misery love earlier in the show. Misery has a special place in my heart because I watched it for the first time as the million-dollar movie on a television in a bus station in Pittsburgh during a blizzard in April. If there is a better viewing environment for that movie, I don't want to know what it is. Ryan Redfield said, I was pleased that Josh included Stranger Than Fiction in his top five, but you both failed to include the greatest movie about writers of all time. Wonder Boys. Another one from that poll. Although it did get honorable mention. The movie includes a soundtrack with some of the greatest singer-songwriters of all time, including Bob Dylan, Neil Young, and Leonard Cohen. There's a great tie-in to your show, as Tobey Maguire's character has a love for old movies. An email here from Mold Norway. Finn Feth is how we are going to say it and probably say it incorrectly. His top five, 
Well, it's a lot of Woody Allen, basically. It's Midnight in Paris. It's Another Woman. Number three, Manhattan. Number two, Bullets Over Broadway. And number one, I don't know how you put this at number one. Let's find out what Finn has to say about deconstructing Harry. Harry Block, Woody Allen is a successful writer and a not-so-successful family man. Brilliant casting in a film that switches between reality and stage bits from his writing, with the characters just slightly altered. This movie is all about a writer and his writing, and thus... There you go. Deserves the top spot on this list. So not necessarily the quality. Not of the necessarily film. I don't quality. Think Deconstructing Harry is considered one of Alan's no. high points, right? And rightfully so. It's an okay film. It's a decent Woody Allen film. Certainly not in the same category as Bullets, Manhattan, or Another Woman. I would say those are our top five movies about writers. We want to get more of your picks. Email us feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail three one two two six four zero seven four four. Or you can find us on Twitter at filmspotting. That's Adam. At Larson on Film, that's me. And we're at Facebook.com slash Filmspotting. Over at Filmspotting.net, that's where you can find 10 years of reviews, marathons, and top fives, and some interviews in the show archives. And at the website, take a moment and vote in the current Film Spotting poll, your favorite director-muse combo. Please, please tell us where you're voting from. <laughs> Thank you, Josh. Just hit it one more time. Out in wide release, The Man from Uncle, 60s TV show gets a 60s set feature adaptation. Henry Cavill, Army Hammer, oh, my favorite, Alicia Vikander, in a movie directed by Guy Ritchie and Straight Out of Compton, starring Paul Giamatti. Is he Dre think, or Easy? I think e? there might be a few other people starring in I that. I mean, than Paul Giamatti, Giamatti can do anything. Well, He's let's capable not get carried of away. anything, Josh. Out in limited release, Diary of a Teenage Girl is opening in Chicago. We just saw the trailer for this movie prior to the end of the tour, and I'm intrigued. I believe I just saw a tweet that Michael Phillips gave it four stars in the really? Tribune. Really? Four stars? I think That's so. That's a bold statement. I know. <laughs> it's a coming-of-age tale about a 15-year-old aspiring comic book artist in 70s-era San Francisco. It also stars Kristen Wiig. Fort Tilden is out. That's about 20-something Brooklyn hipsters trying to make it to the beach. Is this like a Warriors remake? It's also available via VOD. And Khalil Gibran's The Prophet. This was guest host Tasha Robinson's number one most anticipated movie of the summer when she joined you, Josh, back in May for our 2015 summer preview. Indie animators adapt Gibran's beloved book. Did you get the link to that? I that saw I that we have a link. Family viewing tomorrow night in our Family house. Family viewing, really? Yeah. Okay. Maybe, Excited about it. Maybe we will steal that from the Larson Playbook and have family movie night as well. A couple other titles we wanted to highlight here in Chicago at the museum. Music box Phoenix from German director Christian Petzold. It's about a disfigured concentration camp survivor searching for the husband who may have betrayed her. This movie I've been seeing a lot of good buzz about, just at least in little tweets and asides here on Letterboxd. So really want to see Phoenix and also at the music box, The Look of Silence, the new one from the active killing director Joshua Oppenheimer. That is the movie we're going to discuss on next week's show. I'd suggest that the top five we should revisit is an oldie, an ancient from the Film Spotting Archives, top five one-timers, movies that are so overwhelming and daunting just because of the subject matter that maybe one time is enough, though. I'm not sure I really feel that way about the act of killing. We'll see how I feel about the look of silence. You'll have to find out what the top five is actually going to be next week. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, and our world. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.
Listen up, Philip. A now here, genuine question. Do you remember? Did I talk to? I didn't talk to Alex Ross Perry. I talked to Schwartzman, right? You talked to Schwartzman. Yeah. I'm so glad you asked that question. No idea. <laughs> okay, finish the last line. Sorry, one more time. Philip, I don't know why I can't cra- distinguish it because I, I <laughs> no because it just makes me feel good because I my mind blanks like yeah, that seriously it's like one of those things you should really remember I did like a 25 minute interview and I thought it was pretty good and I can't remember which guy I talked I to. remember it you talked about the stapler for quite a while yeah but it was I could have talked interview. about that didn't I talk to Alex Ross Perry are we sure it's I know sure you talked Schwartzman? to Schwartzman I know you talked to Schwartzman I cannot confirm whether did you talk to both of them at the same time <laughs> Maybe I talked to both of them at the same time. I'm looking you this up You better look now. it up. But you know what this means. We do too many shows. This is crazy. <laughs> and at least we now have an outtake.